Lesson 13 for September 21 through 27, A Community of Servants, read by Dr. Percy Harold. Sabbath afternoon, September 20. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that as we come to the end of this series, we find a place for ourselves in the mission, not only of the church, but in the mission of Jesus to restore and help those who need that restoration and help. We pray that as we read your word this week, that we may be guided by your Holy Spirit to see what your will for us individually is. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 23 and 24. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Let's read that again, Hebrews 10, verse 23 and 24. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. In seeking to fulfil the Christian mission, we should not underestimate the potential of the Church as an organised community of believers. We have already noted the challenges that we can face when seeking to deal with injustice and poverty. But by working with fellow believers in a community of faith, we can be a blessing to those around us. The temptation is that when we get together as a church, we become distracted with keeping the church itself going, forgetting that the church exists to serve the world in which God has placed it. As a church body, we must not ignore the suffering and evil that exists all around us. If Christ didn't ignore it, We must not either. We must be faithful to our mandate to preach the gospel. And along with that preaching comes the work of helping the oppressed, the hungry, the naked and the helpless. Together as a church community and organisation, we are the body of Christ, as we read in 1 Corinthians 10 verses 12 through 20. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greek, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. For in fact the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I am not of the body, Is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. As such, we as a community should walk as Jesus walked, reach out as Jesus did, and serve as the hands, feet, voice and heart of Jesus in the world today.
Sunday, September 22, Agents of Change We have seen in the early chapters of Acts how the first Christian believers established a different kind of community, caring for those in need among them, and together reaching out to those outside the community, offering them help where needed, and inviting them to join in with what God was doing among them. Adding to Jesus' descriptions of salt and light, Paul uses a number of metaphors to portray the church's action in the world. Among others, he describes those who live as God's people as a sacrifice in Romans 12.1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. As Christ's body, which we read about yesterday in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 to 20, as ambassadors, as we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you, as on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And as perfume, in Second Corinthians chapter two, verses fourteen through sixteen. Now thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and through us diffuses the fragrance of His knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? Each of these images talks about a role as representatives or agents of God's kingdom even now, even amid a world ravaged by the great controversy. Question. Review each of these representative descriptions above. Which best describes how you would like to represent God and his ways in your community and why? So there was the sacrifice, Christ's body, ambassadors and perfume. Each of these images has action associated with them, not as a means of being acceptable to God, but as people already accepted by God through Christ's sacrifice, who have responded to God's love and grace by being his agents in a hurt and dying world. But they also can be considered on a still deeper level, because God's love and grace is what the kingdom of God is about. When we act in such a way, reflecting to others in love and grace, we enact and participate in that eternal kingdom, even now. In international law, a national embassy is considered part of the nation it represents, even when physically located in a foreign country perhaps a long distance from the home nation. In a similar way, enacting the ways of God's kingdom offers glimpses of that eternal reality here and now, and, 
as such, points to and is a foretaste of the final defeat of evil, and by so doing, as Christ's ambassadors, as Christ's agents, we can experience the reality of his love and justice in our own lives, in the church, and in the lives of those we seek to serve. So to finish today, read Second Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. What is the difference between the two aromas, and how can we know which one we are? Second Corinthians 2, verse 16. To the one we are the aroma of death, leading to death, and to the other the aroma of life, leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? Monday, September 23, A Servant Remnant The standard definition of the remnant people identified in Bible prophecy is found in Revelation 12.17. Those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Also, we have a description in Revelation 14, verse 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. In the Bible story, these features mark out God's people in the latter stages of earth's history. But also in the Bible stories, we can find examples of how such a remnant acts, and particularly how such people serve others. Question. Consider the example of Moses in this regard. Read Exodus 32 verses 1 to 14. What is the comparison between Moses in this story and the remnant described in Revelation 12.17 that we've just read? Exodus 32, beginning at verse 1. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool, and made a moulded calf. Then they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Then they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink, and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go, get down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a moulded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is our God, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and I will make of you a great nation. 
Then Moses pleaded with the Lord his God and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak and say, He brought them out of harm, he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains, and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from your harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of I give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. In his anger at the people of Israel, God was threatening to destroy them and transfer the promises given to Abraham that his descendants would become a great nation to Moses and his family, as we read in verse 10. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them and I will make of you a great nation. But Moses didn't want that. Instead, Moses had the boldness to argue with God, suggesting that for the Lord to act as he was threatening to act would make him look bad, as he said in verses 11 to 13. Then Moses pleaded with the Lord his God and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak and say, he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains, and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. Remember, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have spoken of I give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. But then Moses went further and put himself on the line to urge his case with God. Moses had been struggling to lead these people through the wilderness. They had been complaining and bickering almost from the moment he had led them to freedom. And yet Moses says to God, If you are not able to forgive them, then blot me out of the book you have written. In verse 32 of chapter 32. Moses offered to give up eternity to save those with whom he had shared his journey. What a powerful example of self-sacrificing intercession in behalf of those who don't deserve it. And what a powerful symbol of the entire plan of salvation. In the book Patriarchs and Prophets, page 319, we read, As Moses interceded for Israel, his timidity was lost in his deep interest and love for those for whom he had, in the hands of God, been the means of doing so much. The Lord listened to his pleadings and granted his unselfish prayer. God had proved his servant. He had tested his faithfulness and his love for that unerring, ungrateful people, and nobly had Moses endured the trial. His interest in Israel sprang from no selfish motive. The prosperity of God's chosen people was dearer to him than personal honour, dearer than the privilege of becoming the father of a mighty nation. God was pleased with his faithfulness, his simplicity of heart, and his integrity, and he committed to him, as a faithful shepherd, the great charge of leading Israel to the promised land. So to finish the day, 
What does this tell us about how, to the degree possible, we should deal with the erring around us? Tuesday, September 24, Reaching Souls Church discussions sometimes seem to get stuck on the apparent need to choose between a focus on social work or gospel work, either charity or witnessing, either justice or evangelism. But when we better understand each of these concepts and observe the ministry of Jesus, the difference breaks down, and we realize that preaching the gospel and working to help others are closely linked. In one of Ellen White's best-known statements, she explained it like this, in Ministry of Healing, page 143, Christ's method alone will give true success in reaching the people. The Saviour mingled with men as one who desired their good. He showed his sympathy for them, ministered to their needs, and won their confidence. Then he bade them, follow me. The poor are to be relieved, the sick cared for, the sorrowing and the bereaved comforted, the ignorant instructed, the inexperienced counselled. We are to weep with those that weep, and rejoice with those that rejoice. End of quote. As we've seen, these two kingdom actions, justice and evangelism, were closely entwined, not only in Jesus' ministry, but in Jesus' first commission to his disciples in Matthew 10, 7 and 8. As you go, proclaim this message, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons, freely you have received, freely give. In short, one of the best ways to reach others with our message is to minister to their needs. Question. Read 1 Peter chapter 2.12 and Philippians 2.15. What do Peter and Paul say about the witnessing power of good works done by God's people? 1 Peter 2.12 Having your conduct honourable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, Glorify God in the day of visitation. And Philippians 2.15 That you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. With a broader understanding of God's good news, evangelism does not make sense in the absence of a passion for people. Verses such as 1 John 3 verses 16 to 18 and James 2.16 emphasize the contradiction in preaching the gospel without living it out. Let's look at those two verses, 1 John 3.16-18. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed 
and in truth. And James 2.16, And one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body. What does it profit? At its best, evangelism, bringing the good news of hope, rescue, repentance, transformation and God's all-embracing love, is an expression of justice. Both evangelism and the desire for justice spring from recognising God's love for lost, broken and hurt people. A love also that grows in our hearts under the influence of God in our lives. We don't choose one action or another. Instead, we work with God in working with people, meeting their real needs and using whatever resources God has entrusted us with. So to finish today, how can we make sure, though, that as we do good works for others, we don't neglect preaching the good news of salvation as well? Wednesday, September 25, Grace Within the Church At the beginning of the book of Job, God points to Job and his faithfulness to him as a demonstration of the goodness of God's ways and his dealings with fallen humanity. We read about that in Job 1 verse 8. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? It is remarkable that God allows his reputation to hang on how his people live on this earth. But Paul expanded this faith God has in some of his saints to include the community of the church in Ephesians 3.10. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Question. Read Ephesians Chapter 2, verse 19. What do you think is included in the idea of describing the church community as the household of God? How should this description influence how the organized church operates? Ephesians 2, verse 19. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. In any community or organization, how that entity treats its members reflects the foundational values of the group. As the household of God, the body of Christ and the community of the Spirit, the Church has the highest of callings to live out and live up to. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people, we read in 1 Corinthians 14 verse 33. The values of justice, grace and love, as demonstrated in God's justice, grace and love, should govern all that happens within the church, from local church communities to the worldwide church organisation. These principles should guide church leaders in how they lead, make decisions and care for the least of these among the church community. They also should guide how we resolve the disputes that arise from time to time among members. If we can't treat those among us with fairness and dignity, how are we going to do that with others as well? 
When the church organization employs people, it should be a generous employer, valuing people before any other consideration and working against unfair treatment of members. Churches should be safe places, with all church members doing what they can to protect the vulnerable. And as we see in the early church, members of the church community should be especially prepared to give to support those of their church family who are suffering or in need. Jesus gave this as a command, saying that this would not only transform the community of faith, but it also would demonstrate the reality of their faith to those looking on. In John 13, verses 34 and 35, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Thursday, September 26. Encourage each other to good works. Even with the best motivations and intentions and believing that we are on the side of God and goodness, working for the Lord can be difficult and discouraging. The sadness and pain of our world are real. This is one reason we need a church community. Jesus modelled this kind of supportive community with his disciples. He rarely sent people out on their own, and even when that happened, they would soon come together again to share their stories and renew their energy and courage. Question. Read Hebrews 10, verses 23 to 25. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Hebrews 10.25 is the best known of these verses. So what do the preceding two verses add to our understanding of the well-known verse? What are some of the ways in which we can encourage each other toward love and good deeds? In almost any task, cause or project, a group of people working together can achieve more than all of those people working individually. This reminds us again of the picture of the church as the body of Christ, in which we all have different but complementary roles to play. Romans twelve three to 6 For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. When we each do what we do best, but do it in a way that allows our influences to work together, we can trust by faith that our lives and work will make a difference for eternity. While results are important when seeking to do what is right, the results are about people and their lives. We sometimes have to trust God with what the results might be. 
At times, when working to alleviate poverty, to protect the vulnerable, to free the oppressed and to speak up for the voiceless, we will see little progress. But we have the hope that we are working in a far greater and inevitably victorious cause. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Galatians 6 verses 9 and 10. We'll also compare that with Hebrews chapter 13 verse 16. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. This is why we are called to encourage, literally to inspire with courage one another. Living faithfully is both joyous and difficult. Our God of justice and our community of justice are our greatest supports and what we invite others to join. So to finish the day, whom do you know or know of who regularly works at alleviating the sufferings of others? How could you encourage that person or group in the good work they are doing? Friday, September 27. The work which the disciples did, we also are to do, writes Ellen White in the Ministry of Healing, page 104 and 106. Every Christian is to be a missionary. In sympathy and compassion we are to minister to those in need of help, seeking with unselfish earnestness to lighten the woes of suffering humanity. We are to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, and comfort the suffering and afflicted. We are to minister to the despairing, and to inspire hope in the hopeless. The love of Christ, manifested in unselfish ministry, will be more effective in reforming the evildoer than will the sword or the court of justice. Often, the heart that hardens under reproof will melt under the love of Christ. End of quote. And from the same author, The Life Sketches of Ellen White, page 473, slavery, the caste system, unjust racial prejudices, the oppression of the poor, the neglect of the unfortunate, these all are set forth as unchristian and a serious menace to the well-being of the human race, and as evils which the Church of Christ is appointed by her Lord to overthrow. And that's the General Conference President A.G. Daniels speaking of the work of Ellen G. White at her funeral. And that brings us to our discussion questions for this week, and there are four. There are many people, groups and organisations seeking to relieve need in the world. What unique strengths, insights and resources can the Seventh-day Adventist Church bring to this task? Two, can you remember a time you felt encouraged and supported by your church community? Learning from that experience, how can you extend that same encouragement to others? Three, as well as the support of a church community, what other things can help you avoid becoming weary in doing good? Four, 
what are some of the justice and poverty projects and initiatives you are aware of that the Seventh-day Adventist Church around the world is currently supporting? How might you be able to contribute to this aspect of the Church's work? And to summarise this week's lesson. Yes, as Christians, we are called to minister to the needs of others, especially others who are hurting, suffering and oppressed. And though we have our individual responsibilities in this area, as a community focused on ministering to others, we can be much more effective working together as a church family. Inside Story Our mission story this week is titled Driving Passengers to Christ and it's by Andrew McChesney of Adventist Mission. Byung-jin Oh, a taxi driver in rural South Korea, had never led anyone to Christ after years in church and he decided to change that. Byung-jin saw many repeat customers and began to build relationships. He collected passengers' cell phone numbers and, with his wife, took them out to eat and visited them at home. One Sabbath afternoon, Byung-jin and his wife, Mi Yun-yun, visited the home of a passenger named Mr. Choi. They chatted for a while, and Byung-jin invited the man out to dinner. As they left the house, Mr. Choi pointed to a small church nearby and said that he once had worshipped there. Byung-jin saw an opportunity to share his faith. We have a very beautiful church, he said. Would you like to visit it? Mr. Choi agreed to visit the church in the town of Chuncheon. Byung-jin drove to a local restaurant. Its Adventist owner expressed delight that Mr. Choi planned to attend church and declared that the meal of buckwheat noodles was on the house. The kindness surprised Mr. Choi and strengthened his resolve to visit the church. After that first Sabbath, Mr. Choi returned to the church every week and was baptised. Byung-jin had won his first soul for Christ and he didn't intend to stop. One day, he saw an elderly man emerge from a house as he drove past. He had seen the man before and stopped to greet him. "'I was about to call for a taxi,' the man said. Byung-jin quickly offered to take the man to his destination. As he drove, he learned that the man was named Mr. Park and decided to visit him at home that evening. Byung-jin and his wife showed up with several small gifts— Mr. Park ushered them into the living room and introduced them to his wife, Chunja An. Byung-yen learned that the wife had a problem. She couldn't attend Sunday services at her church because she worked six days a week with only Saturdays off. We go to church on Saturday, Byung-yen said. Why don't you come with us? Soon she was baptised. In two years, Byung-yen pictured left has led three people to Christ. He is convinced that if he, a 58-year-old taxi driver, can do it, so can anyone. Reduce your work so you can do God's work, he said. Simplify your life and then fill it with the joy of meeting souls. And that brings us to the end of this quarter's lessons. Once again, I'll still be at the South Queensland camp this weekend. It lasts the whole week. Um, So remember LMMSA and... uh, 
You can view online many of the meetings there, and I might even be introducing some of them to you on camera. But in the meantime, we're looking forward to next quarter's lessons. Have a great Sabbath. You have been listening to a reading of the Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide by Dr. Percy Harold from Queensland, Australia. This service is brought to you by Hope Channel, the Sabbath School Department and Christian Services for the Blind. Remember, God is always faithful.